You got, a, you got a lot of phlegm to cough up there. Uh, yeah. That years of smoking process for you. Can't quit it. Got to get another pack of process. Yeah, 30 years, you know. <laughs> 30 years of architecture in these lungs. Uh, yuck. All right. Maybe we don't take this as an outtake. <laughs> You'll never know. Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., how are you doing today? Not too bad, Roland. How are you doing today? Well, actually, I'm feeling pretty good because we have a major accomplishment today. So first of all, I'm testing out a new microphone. Let's see how that sounds but maybe more importantly this is sit tight ladies and gentlemen mm -hmm. our 25th episode of the what's your baseline podcast Ooh, all right which, which by coincidence also concludes season two of our podcast so i think we got some major milestones here today Yeah, and don't be worried, folks. We plan to return for a fantastic season three starting in just about a month and a half or so. Not even that. Yeah, July 25th. I so know. It's, it's close. I can see it from here if I look sharply out of my window. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I know that a lot of the requests that came in after season two, we did a great poll and survey. We got some fantastic feedback, and I can guarantee you we are incorporating that feedback into season three. So you're going to see a lot, a lot different things, some more opportunities for people to speak, you know, some really cool things coming down the pipeline in terms of topics. I mean, Roland, tell, tell us about what you've been working on for season three. Oh, I think that the most important one is, and that was one of the feedbacks that we got uh, from the, the little survey that we did is that in the past two seasons, we only had men on the call. And that's obviously not okay in the 21st century. So what I can tell you, JM, in case you forgot, you know, our first episode in season three is with a wonderful Laurie Kelly. And we're going to talk about how to communicate architecture successes with her. And little sneak peek, we're also working on a mini panel with two wonderful ladies where we will talk about, hopefully, about women in process. And both ladies run their own initiative. One is called Women in BPM and the other one is called Women in Process Mining. And I hope we can contribute a little bit to a little bit more uh, diversity yes. in our discipline. Absolutely. But... That's some great previewing. Let's get to the show today. And for today's show, I, I, I got to say, Roland, I enjoyed this so much in our first season that I thought we should definitely have more. This is what we call 10 Things I've Learned. Well, another 10 Things I've Learned, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and these are some of the best, best practices, tips and tricks, ideas we've come across in our experiences along the different clients we've spoken to in our time on the road. We had a ton of fun recording the first 10 and we realized we had way more to communicate and talk about. So these are going to be quick hits, things that are just sort of mini topics to, to have conversations around. Um, and of course, if you haven't gone to whatsyourbaseline.com, there's lots of ideas 
ideas and conversations like this happening, little articles that encapsulate a single topic and sort of dive into it for a moment to give you some best practices. And then on top of it, obviously, we do have our What's Your Baseline shorts, which are a little bit longer than what we'll talk about each topic in, in today's session. But when I look at today's uh, outline that we did, we basically talk about three different things hmm. on a very high level. The first section that we're going to talk about is around measurement mm -hmm. and how you analyze uh, your architecture and your processes, while the second one is something that I'm very excited uh, about is, well, uh, a new renaissance of the term process mm -hmm. and people get uh, involved in it, especially young people. And what does that mean? And then lastly, uh, the last two uh, bullets that we have is more about the situation that we all work in for the last two years you know we're working all remotely we're working from home and uh, we're doing podcasts for almost three quarters of a year by now so <laughs> um what does that actually mean what qualitative change do we have mm -hmm. well Roland, why don't you kick us off you've been talking about the different things we have let's go with our very first of the 10 things i've learned yeah, so JM, um, one thing that we've learned is that architecture and process management is actually not about the topics at hand, you know, so the content that we talk about, apps and processes and so on. It's mostly about people and how people <laughs> interact with each other. Have you, have you seen that too? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like we're going to talk about this in a couple of the 10 things I've learned, which is the impact of everything we do on people. But architecture and process is a structure to enable the business. Mm -hmm. And what is the business? It's people. And so if you can't communicate those things to people, if you can't enable your technology, your practices with people in mind, well, you lose the end executor. You lose the thing that's doing it, the human being. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's also, as we said, I think in the org change management uh, episode, you know, the one thing that I typically say is you can't put as many wallpapers on your wall, you know, process diagrams as you want. You can put as many boxes and cables in your basement as you like. But if the person uh, in front of the screen doesn't want to do it, they won't. So it's, it's very important to have uh, people, the people side, being into your consideration when you do architecture. Absolutely. And particularly, what is architecture enabling? What is process enabling? Mm -hmm. Really, at the, at the core of it, it's enabling collaboration. It's enabling interactions between people. And if we don't have a system to align our technology and our process and our, our practice around the structures of our people and their relationships and the coordination that goes into organizing a business of humans, then we're not going to be able to achieve our goals, our purposes. So we have to enable our people, align our people, give them the information they need to do their job, the technology they need to be able to, pr to produce. and bring that together as part of our practice rather than simply thinking of people as the last step. I agree. But then JM, talk to me, where do you see or, or where do you see the reasons where people interact with each other 
um, and and they have certain preferences. Why do they fight with each other? Uh, <laughs> not not to the bitter end, but they defended uh, their position to a place where it's not reasonable anymore. What, why why does that happen from your perspective? That's a great question. I, I think that the, the one of the most important things to remember is that people inherently are going to be protective of them and their family, those that they consider part of their tribe. Mm -hmm. And where people fight the most is where they don't understand how what's being brought in is going to affect them in a positive way. They only see that change is going to threaten their position, the valuation of their knowledge and experience, and mm -hmm. those in their tribe, the, the folks around them that they care about. So that's why managers are going to be protective of changes that could, could harm their people. That's where they're protecting themselves and they're protecting their, their people if they're a good manager representing for them without understanding that change is a collective effort. And so when you what you do is you show them just a narrow slit. They can look through this tiny little eye hole of what a change is going to be mm -hmm. and how it's going to affect them. They're only ever going to see what's going to threaten them. But if you open it up, you have a larger conversation around the way in which this is going to build better an organization. You've got them on board. That that is one thing, you know. Uh, the the what of our personal fear of failure, you know. Oh, we won't be able to make this, and and, and all these type mm -hmm. of things that that come with the topic of change, because by definition it's the unknown. Yes. But there's there's also a cultural aspect on it, and unfortunately, I have worked in organizations that work that way, mm. where managers had that. Uh, create fear and and uh, reign over the people uh, attitude yeah. which which quite honestly stinks you know because then that you like to talk about that's obviously a matter of trust right mm -hmm. and if you don't have trust in your organization well guess what then any change may it be big or small is super scary and you're just ducking away and and hope that you have enough cover for that stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's that's a good thing to, to cap this off is, is that, I mean, I think there's a there's an element of trust, there's an element of alignment, but ultimately mm -hmm. there's it's just, you need to have in mind and think about the people you affect with change and how those people are going to perceive that change as you're communicating out architecture, as you're communicating out process. And it, that, it's simple as that. And when you bring that to front of mind, suddenly we had a, an episode about process empathy, suddenly you're feeling what someone else is going to be affected by the process and you're going to make a decision that's going to benefit them and their tribe. And that's that's very important. But Roland, I, I know that one of the things when we, we make changes, we also want to measure them. And I, I, I know that you wanted to talk a little bit more about how you measure objectives, how you measure architecture. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, it's not only just the, the, the hard measuring of the content or maybe as the second step, the governance. It's also, uh, it creates clarity in the adoption if you have your objectives being smart. Do you ah, know that acronym? Number, number two, when measuring architecture, make things smart. Well, please yes. define smart for me. So smart is an abbreviation for specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Mm -hmm. So what you should do is you obviously when you have a new initiative and and you say, hey, we're going to implement this new system to do blah, blah and blah, you know, to be in a better market position or whatnot, you should think about how do you measure success and 
typically you come up with some very lofty goals. You know, we want to increase our um, market share by X percent, or we want to save X million in whatever procurement or whatever your your business goal is. Typically, those are not smart. Smart mm. in the sense of they're not stupid, but you know, measurable time bound and so on and so forth. So what you want is you want to take your strategic objectives and break them down, down to a level where the lowest objective would accomplish being smart. Mm -hmm. Right, because that that allows you to actually count things, to measure times, you mm -hmm. know, all those things that make it make it tangible. And then you roll it back up and you do some calculations maybe. Right. And those go up then to your strategic objectives. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really important for me about smart is the R. And I think we talk about this a lot, the, that they're relevant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times objectives, uh, we, we talk about this a lot when we think about uh, enablement and training. A lot of the objectives that are, are often stated aren't really relevant to the outcomes of training. They're relevant to the measurement of the outcomes of training. So you're measuring how you can measure rather than measuring mm -hmm. how you can impact. And that's not relevant. So for instance, if you measure the number of trainings given versus the outcomes of those trainings, yeah and ability for people to do their job, that's uh, not a smart objective. That, that fails at our criteria. And I think we talk about that a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. It's not important how many training sessions you gave. It's important that the people who work with your new system six months down the road now how, know how to use it. I, I'm 100% with you. But mm -hmm. if you don't have JM, if you don't have the slightest idea where to start, with your objectives, what what would be your recommendations to have a look at to get those KPIs? Yeah, it's a great, great question. We covered it a little bit in some of our in one of the other episodes, but it was a great learning experience for me. Um, I, I've really gotten hot into industry frameworks um, and mm -hmm. references, so I know things like SCORE for supply chain, Accord for the insurance industry, buy-in for banking. Those frameworks often have KPI sets associated with them, and so as you're looking at trying to build out an understanding. Of of where you should be in benchmark, you can grab from your peers. I mean, I think a lot of people are very protective of the way they do business. They think that, oh, we do our special secret sauce procure to pay. No, you mm -hmm. don't. Everyone does procure to pay essentially the same way or a dumb way. And you should be using an industry standard for those non-differentiating processes so you can get to the, to the differentiating processes with full enablement. Yeah, there's two things that I'd, I'd like to caution you about. Besides, I don't want to get dinged about that on LinkedIn again <laughs> uh, when we were speaking about that dashboarding episode that we had. So to be very, very clear, uh, I think what you get with those frameworks is a boatload of KPIs, way too many that, that anyone can comprehend. So I think the first thing you should do is pick the ones that are relevant for you. And mm -hmm. maybe in the beginning, you pick a handful of those. Right, and implement those. The second thing is, which might be even more important than picking the right KPIs, right in inverted commas, KPIs is get an agreement with the other people in your organization that those five things that you've picked are relevant for everyone. Oh, yeah. And then so that everybody sees the word with the same lens or through the same lens and not everybody says, yeah, but for me, this is much more important. And therefore, I want to have my little extra KPI. Yeah. But I mean, I think that that's really important when it comes to intelligent measurement design, right? You're looking to mm -hmm. synthesize what comes in and then socialize 
that with your stakeholders, gain consensus, and then come together to create a document that's associated with the success of the organization, success of an initiative. So as I think you're right. We got kind of dinged by saying a lot of these are the golden standard. They aren't the gold standard. What they are is a great starting point. Exactly. Remember, you have to know your business because they won't know your business. But once again, they'll know a, a big portion of how generically things are done and that's a good place to start i wholeheartedly agree which brings me to our third point because kpis are very very important when it comes to analysis right mm -hmm. and jm what is the hot thing in our industry <laughs> right now <laughs> oh baby it's process and task mining <laughs> that is what everybody wants to talk about yeah so so take away lesson learned number three that we have is that process mining is the next hot thing but it's not all. Another older process improvement methods still have their place. Yeah. So, JM, can you talk a little bit about the stuff that I'm actually contradicting myself now a little <laughs> bit? You know. Well, no, I, I think I think for, I, I want to just set the baseline here on this one. Is I feel like there's a lot of people who think process mining is going to replace process improvement methodologies like being mm -hmm. the whole process improvement life cycle with business process modeling with business process analysis with you know different types of studies and time motion and and the ability to go out and do business discovery they think that all that's going to go away because some sort of technology can ai your business into being better and that's just not the case process mining does not replace process modeling process really? mining does not replace facilitated sessions with business experts because process mining is giving you a snapshot into the way that the transactions worked. It's not giving you a real picture into the way your business works. And that requires industry expertise. That requires business expertise from your stakeholders. There is no replacement for that. And as far as I can tell, there never will be because we keep saying this in the podcast, but I'll say it again. Data may be king, but context is its crown. So, so now I'm obviously disappointed because I thought I just took on that new job in, in our process mining COE and I thought AI would solve my problem and I could oh, hang boy. out on the beach. Damn. No, but in all seriousness, you're absolutely right. I think um, it's important to see the bigger picture and the bigger picture is not just getting an as-is mm -hmm. of your processes. The, the questions that are, still exist like, what do I do with it? Oh, yeah. How do I change it? Mm -hmm. Um, how do I implement it in systems? Uh, how do I convince people to go with me on the journey? How do I create SOPs and, and train people on what they're supposed to do? And so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. They don't go away just because you implement a process mining tool. No, I, no, I'm no. with you with that. And the other thing is that technologies can sometimes be a scary thing, right? You think about people talking about, we, we, we spoke about how robots might replace us all. Well, I mean, sure, that was hyperbole in the episode, but it also isn't something people aren't saying. They're all worried about this. And so remember that we, introducing a technology solution that you expect to solve a people problem when the technology you know, purports to be able to replace them, mm -hmm. you're going to get pushback no matter what you do from one of those previous things we talked about. You know, it's all about the people. It, it can't just be this technology solution. We have to yeah. work in concert. Having said that, I think there is a qualitative difference, you know, and, and we've mm. spoken with that over and over again. I think having data-driven analysis 
is a step up or is a step forward, not necessarily a step up. It's a step forward. Yes, it's, it's definitely a step forward. Right. So so we, I don't want to belittle all the process mining stuff and task mining stuff. I think it's just another tool in the tool set. Um, the, the other thing, process mining obviously gives you a good view of what runs, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what you need to change. Right. So you need a specific knowledge type or a specific knowledge that did not exist typically in process improvement organizations or in the analyst tool set before. You know, you need to know uh, how to do statistics and to know the difference between the average and the median and sample sizes and, and all that type of stuff. While you also need to know uh, how to do <clears throat> data management. You know, if somebody whatever drops a bunch of tables from your ERP system that are not related to each other in some form of fashion <laughs> or logically on your desk well you have to create to build a data model mm -hmm. while in the past you just brought in the SMEs and you asked them questions until you understood what they actually meant so there is a different a set of skills and, and we spoke about that in one of our baseline shorts about this how to get into process mining mm -hmm. but i think it's a change for the good that yeah we have absolutely here. and that leads us to our fourth lesson learned because well as, as a change for good that change has some responsibility of decision making and that is that process and task mining can't shotgun a solution mm. <laughs> really really i had clients who who just said here's our data tell me what i what you learned from this data <laughs> exactly and i think there's two components of this so when you say shotgun a solution you're trying to hit a target right you're trying to fix problems in the company and if you think process and task mining you can just put all the data in and it will tell you which problems there are and how to solve them then you're missing a really big component of this. You need to go into a project with a hypothesis instead of just sort of looking for what sticks out as a sore thumb of a big you know, haystack. Find me the needles in this haystack. Well, that's really expensive and resource intensive to stand up. So first and foremost, have defined use cases to go after so we can segment the data. And secondly, have hypotheses that you are testing in that segmented data so it effectively use the information you have. So you're basically saying to, to get the connection back to our first topic, talk to people right? <laughs> yes. and see where, where the shoe hurts, right? Exactly. Well, that's going to give you a lot of resources. And also the, the other thing about shotgunning a solution is you don't want to be sending out all of these little pebbles. Pick your time windows effectively. Focus your beam rather than just you know having a scatter shot. So for instance, sending random samples of data to, to process and task mining, um, that's not going to give you what you want because that ne doesn't necessarily have meaningful data within them. The best process mining jobs I ever worked on are ones where we have a set of data that includes data prior to and post a change in the way in which people were working. And they mm -hmm. wanted to understand where that change was working and where that change wasn't. So they could see, you know, we have an understanding of what we have left to do. Yeah, but it's also a matter of practicality, if you will. You know, if you take the big data dump and just drop it into somebody's lab, uh, creating the necessary data model behind it becomes super complex, mm -hmm. right? So my suggestion would be to start small, right, so that you can identify the various data objects. So mm -hmm. when we think about the the 
very old standard use case procure to pay, right? You want to have a data object like a purchase rec or a purchase rec change or a purchase order, a purchase order change or the invoice or the goods receipt or whatever, right? So you want to keep that in the beginning relatively small because you always can add more to it. Yeah. But even with that small data model, I'm not talking data set, right? The volume of cases might be still high, but that small data model might give you some insights. And then you say, oh, now let's bolt on another data object. You know, mm -hmm. let's see how this goes if we add this to it, or if we have a wider focus and we're not just looking at one region, but on multiple regions or mm -hmm. whatever. We take the, the order channel into it, whatever it is, but the core is solid and you get the buy-in from your stakeholders to say, yep, I believe you, right? I believe that this is the, the core result that we get out of this. So therefore, when you add another thing or two, that they still believe you that you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And the benefit is you build your data model up over time, because when you think about it, you might get this type of information from one system and that type of information from another one. That whole application landscape in the back might become super, super complex, and you reduce that complexity there as well, while in parallel generating value because you find the first improvement opportunities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the other thing that I hear a lot is people asking the question, how, how much data should I include in the set that I'm sending to you? Right? Mm -hmm. So we talk about uh, the data volume problem. Well. When you're picking your time windows effectively, and you can't shotgun this, you want to pick the right amount of time. So think of velocity and frequency. So how much time does it take for an end-to-end, -end, from start to end, to go through on average? And how often does this process happen? So you don't want to include you know, two years of data if the process takes you know, three hours to finish and it happens 20,000 times a day. That's going to be an unmanageably large data set. And it also has pretty diminishing returns. And after a certain while, you don't need more information to tell you about consistent problems. Whereas conversely, mm -hmm. if, the, if the process takes three months to, to complete and it happens you know, 5,000 times a year, try and send uh, maybe a year's worth of data. So generally what I, I tend to think of, there is a rule of three. Generally, if you can, if you think of your, one of your larger, sort of at the, at the edge of how large you would accept a data uh, or a process to run from beginning to end, try sending what would complete three of those large runs. So if it mm -hmm. takes a month, send three months. If it takes, you know, if it takes three months, send, you know, nine to 12 months at very minimum. And that's going to give you a sense where at least it's completed three times from start to end so that you can see how the process went. And it also might improve the result of your analysis because when you think about it, the process mining tools, if you don't do any filtering there, will give you the full data set size. Mm -hmm. So now if you have three years, five years, 10 years, you get all the old stuff in there as well. Mm -hmm. And then you would have to filter by time, by location, by whatever, and you would see, oh, we did some change here. We acquired a new company and took over their procurement system. 
right? And now your average might have been significantly lower than it has been before. But since you had the full data set, the 10 years, well, your average might look like, mm, you know, <laughs> even though you actually improved. So that's another thing you might want to think about. Absolutely. Well, that's being other things to think about. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed our first four lessons of our 10 things I've learned. Once again, that architecture and BPM is not just about apps and processes, it's about people. That when we're defining and measuring architecture, make things smart, and that's the acronym. The third, that process finding is the, is the new hot thing, but older process improvement methods are still important and that you should continue to use them as part of your process improvement practice and that process and task planning can't shotgun a solution. Pick your windows, build your hypotheses and make process mining work for you. We'll leave you for a few moments with a little bit of music and come back with our second segment of the 10 things I've learned. Welcome back to the next segment of our show. And this is, like I said in the intro, this is the one topic that I found very interesting on our lessons learned, you know, because JM, you and I spoke about people and then we drifted away to technology again. Yeah. But one thing, if I take a step back and think about the discipline that we work, enterprise architecture, business process management, I see some uh, different paths going here. And to be very specific, our uh, lesson learned number five is there's a new interest in process while EA is still stuck in technology. Mm -hmm. So JM, can do you make sense out of this statement? Yeah, I, I, I think about this. I mean, I worked for a, a major, um, let's call them grocery and, and uh, all sorts of delivery chain a while ago. And um, I, worked, I worked with them on the process team and in their architecture team. It was probably a few years back. And seeing the demographic of people and what they were talking about in those two different teams was like night and day. Process was mm -hmm. full of a lot of younger folks who were looking into how to improve practices. They were trying to use methodologies that they had learned in school at times, which we'll talk about a little bit later, on, on how to you know create business cases. And EA was talking about the boxes and the wires and the physical uh, infrastructure and the digital infrastructure that was controlling how the business worked and essentially setting up safeguards to protect the house. They were thinking mm -hmm. of it as a big castle and they wanted to draw a moat around them and their little practice and <laughs> talk tech at people who were trying to talk practice and process. Yeah. And that was a very good protective method, but it also was very isolating. So they ended up becoming this ivory tower kind of by design, or once again, this little castle with a moat of language, a moat of technology to prevent people from coming in and sharing with them the lessons learned and asking from them to come along with them on this journey. 
And that might be related to it. But the, the symptom that I see, which I, on the one hand side, find encouraging, on the other hand, not so encouraging is that a lot of young people, and, and let me explain that, not young as in child's age, but young as people fresh from college, people on their first or second job in their professional career, you know, not like old farts like me, um, they show significantly more interest in the process topic. And that might be because there's that new exciting technology like process and task mining yeah. you know and they got exposed to it in college and all these things but they also do have a drive to change things right you know while the the, the more technical aspect that you described is more like yeah let's rationalize it and let's be safe and all that type of stuff and i think that doesn't resonate with with our younger friends which of course leads us to our sixth point in the 10 things i've learned which is that we have a responsibility to enable the next generation of process experts and architecture experts. And I think it broke my heart to, re to realize when Carlisle, we had a conversation with him, that, that architecture and enterprise architecture still isn't really a program that you can take at a university level in a lot of post-secondary education institutions. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how these kids, if I can call them kids, I suppose that's a little bit talking down, but how these young up and coming professionals are supposed to learn the skills required to support enterprises in their journey on process and architecture any way but on the job, mm -hmm. which seems like a massive failure in our post-secondary education institutions. Now, I'm not just talking about universities, Kate. Okay, so first and foremost, we can also talk about colleges. I'm from Canada. Universities and colleges do have a bit of a, uh, a, a different spin on them. Colleges are a little bit more vocational. Universities are a little bit more theoretical. But nonetheless, both situations, there has to be some conversation about this earlier. So I've been thinking about how to do this a lot about preparing students. And first and foremost, I know that we, we need to take, you know, there's a lot of complication around this, but industry partnerships are really important between universities and professional institutions, technology vendors, and things like that. We need to be making more of those happen, particularly in the architecture space, so they can use our tools to drive their their lessons and learning. And lastly, of course, we need to be able to build our practices into curriculum sets from professors and, and, and educators who are maybe using older technologies as a reference or older practices as a reference. We need to inform departments, professors, students, groups, and things like that about industry topics and tools and work with them to spread methodological knowledge at an earlier stage. Otherwise, once again, it'll be like me. I graduated, um, my, I graduated my, my master's program in 2010 with essentially no knowledge of the industry that I've spent the the last 12 years thriving in yeah hey <laughs> what shall i say you know i graduated <laughs> in 94 you know computers were that big unknown thing at that point in time at least the way how we do it today but in all seriousness i think the i agree with you that there's a challenge and a lack of training um, but on the other side, I also do understand that funding for universities and, and how professors search their topics, they want to be bleeding edge. You know, <laughs> this is why you see, for example, programs for process mining. But you don't see faculties that uh, cover things like uh, process improvement methodologies, you know, mm -hmm. the Leans, the Six Sigmas, which have been on Vogue a couple of years ago. So I do understand that situation that we have here. And the question is, how can for example uh, groups 
like uh, whatever the OPEX and and all those other things, how can they quote unquote pick up the slack on this? Mm-hmm. What is the contribution of organizations like the company that we work for, right, to this? Do we need to go and uh, offer alternatives ways of training, even though that might not have a direct impact on our bottom line? Right, because at the end of the day, the benefit would be that if everybody does that, we have a better qualified workforce. Absolutely. And I think, and I agree with you, I think we, as the discipline, as leaders in organizations, we have some responsibility to educate the next generation of, of architects and process people. Absolutely. And that that leads us to our, our seventh of our <laughs> 10 things I've learned. And this one's going to talk a little bit, not just about the education, but what we call enablement. And I think that the, the, the big topic here is enablement must include the why. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to impart the meaning of your job and, if possible, a passion for the kinds of things you're doing. I know we can't achieve that with everybody, but if all you're doing is looking at tool training or methodology training as simply a set of facts, you're missing one of the most important parts of what this training can offer, which is a thirst a hunger, whatever you call it, for more and to be excellent at that. Which I have to admit, having my kids run through the local school system here, that's not what what kids, and I mean literally kids, get trained to do, Mm -hmm. right? They get trained to replicate, quote unquote, knowledge, which actually is information, right? And they are not trained. And this was one of the things that we looked when, when we raised our two boys is to ask the why question. Mm-hmm. And I think nowadays a lot of people just don't ask why, right? And they just do things because they get told to do certain things and whatnot. But I think the why is the key point of motivation and to put meaning into what you do. Right, yeah. which then can translate into passion, which would be obviously the, the final result where you want to be. You know, uh, if, you're, if you love what you do, you never have a job again because you do what you love. I completely agree. I think that's, that's one of the things that I, I hear a lot or think a lot about is people can do anything for money for a while. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, uh, we're in an economic situation where it's kind of beggars can't be choosers sort of thing. If you're young and you're looking for a job, you'll take what you can and you'll do the, that thing. But it's going to catch up with you because, as I said, you can do, you can do anything for a while for money. Mm-hmm. But when you believe in something, when you understand why it matters, what, why what you do is helping others, changing the way in which they can see the world around them, interact with the organization, build better processes, architecture, secure and sustain an organization. And that has value. It's important to people. When you understand the why, you can do this forever. But that also requires, and I think this is the biggest um hurdle on that way is it requires a different way of communication Hmm. that's obviously trustful you know you need to get feedback you must have a truly open discussion Mm -hmm. right you must have an open ear to to the needs and the sorrows that people have you know they they ask me anything sessions that you want you know i love this and and people need to know that they have both they have the resources to do their job you know which can be really hard stuff you know yeah. you get the tool you get the money you get whatever other people 
but maybe more importantly, they need to understand the context behind their tasks and the role that they play in there. Yeah, absolutely. And the, uh, th- that, that leads into this idea of certification. I know a lot of people are, are happy to show the certificates they have on LinkedIn of all the things they've been, you know, that, oh, mm-hmm. I, I've gone through this training. But I feel like those certification programs are useful to an extent, but they should follow enablement, not precede enablement. And I feel like a lot of times people are like, hey, go get certifications. Go show me all the, the things you've got that, that indicate that I can trust you rather than saying, hey, let me tell you why it's important to know these things. And then people will go and find that for themselves. May I say something uh, potentially conflicting here? Please. I don't care about your certifications. <laughs> I care. I care about your your experience that you've done it before, mm-hmm. that you learned something from your failures, mm-hmm. and that you will approach a new topic in the same area with having that failure learned, if you will, mm-hmm. right? So, like Edison said, I didn't fail ten thousand times. I just found ten thousand ways that don't work, <laughs> and and having uh, a certificate, that's just one step of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. a it's a formal proof that you. Uh, learned some facts, but it doesn't mean that you understood what was taught necessarily. So I, when I have job interviews with with candidates, I'm looking more into experience and and I have them explain how they approach certain things. And I try to get a feeling of it if they just have a checklist in their mind or in front of them that they just run through or if they actually have been in the trenches Mm -hmm. and have done it and have learned something. Good or bad, doesn't matter. Oh yeah, actually, one of my my, my great friends that I, I really enjoy listening to. He's a he's a really interesting guy. He's a a very very advanced engineer um, mm-hmm. in electromechanical engineering, and he does some of the hardest stuff in the world. And from what I know, he does not have a university degree or any certifications. Yeah. But he's yep. brilliant, and he's dedicated, and he went straight, I think, from high school into working on this kind of thing day in and day out. He made it his passion, his lifeblood, and then, of course, the first company that, that he got a chance to talk to, they were like, you don't have anything. Oh, my goodness. You are. Mm-hmm. You have done this over. This is exactly the person I want to hire, and now he's been extremely successful off the back of that. Yeah, just think about that all those frameworks that we all now get certified in, you know, the safes, the TOGAFs and, and whatnot, all those people who invented them were by themselves not certified because they just <laughs> invented it. So it's, it's, it's one way how people uh, try to s- select other people. So yeah. anyway, that's just my little rant. Your mileage <laughs> might vary. Yeah, but I like to come to the last lesson learned in this segment, which is number eight, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And that is uh, internal communications cannot come with the expectation of attention. Mm -hmm. So, JM, JM, when you wrote this, what did you mean by that? So, I have bad news for all the managers, all the directors, all the C-level folks who might listen to this podcast. Internal communications, just because you work for a company doesn't mean you're going to look at every email. You're going to check out everyone's little conversations that are happening about, you know, new policies and practices. Mm-hmm. You're not going to open them. I got to tell you, I spoke to a lot of people when I, I, I did a, a little set of interviews of a lot of my friends in the industry and colleagues when I was trying to tackle this problem. And 
they have the same result over and over again. We just delete most emails that are what? to staff all. What? Without what? even reading them. Without even opening <laughs> them. If the subject line does not first and foremost say, I need you to look at this because here's why. Mm-hmm. I've got a grabber. We talk about it in sales as a grabber. Something that will grab their attention with interactive components, multimedia, easy to consume. You have to run ads for your own programming, essentially, because people aren't going to look at them otherwise. So even if you have the greatest idea in the world, no one will ever hear about it unless you sell the fact they should even open the email that you're sending around with it. Yes, I agree. I don't think that you have to do gimmicky things necessarily, right? But I agree with you. You need to grab their attention. Uh, You need to uh, be consistent in your communication and say, yep, this is what we're going to do. And this is another piece of information that goes in there. And then when you do this and they understand, oh, yeah, this is uh, mail number five from JM, my boss, Mm -hmm. you know, then you still need to convince them and talk to your audience in a way that they understand it. Not what you want to say, because you you know that the different aspects of a message, you know, uh, where you have the, the content, you have the relationship in there, you know, you're the boss, I'm, I'm the, 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 the guy underneath you. You have actually the, the personal relationship, mm-hmm. Ooh, I don't like this guy, you know, and, and all those different aspects that are completely different from the actual content, right? And people might read something and they read the words, but they understand something different. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you need to uh, make sure that you communicate in the way that those people are accustomed to, right? For better or worse, when you think about the young kids nowadays, you know, they do multitasking, which I hate, you know, they they dip in and out and all those things. And then they have 250 million emails that pling and and grab their notification, (laughs) which is just noise you know yeah we're used to that right like we're used to getting inundated with a lot of spam and you never want your major important corporate communications to be flagged by someone's internal spam filter yeah yeah. That kills it. You're never going to get your message through. The other thing is that, is that what you're doing needs to be entertaining, information dense, full of information people need, and then you can tack on the information we passively want them to receive. It has to go in that order. Something, yeah. you, something you want to see, something that's full of good information, something that information is something you want, and then we can add the stuff we want you to know. And, and that brings us actually to things that the marketing folks have understood very, very well. You oh, know, yeah. you, need to, you need to repeat your message. So a, a one and done is just not enough. So that basically means when you think about what you communicate, also think about how you communicate and when. Right. So uh, have some periodic communication, announce your schedule you oh, know, yeah. and, and get the expectations that your your audience, the people reporting into you might have, you know, because you want to be understood. It's not that it's their task to understand what you say, you know, as, as they are uh, part of the job to figure out what you might think. It's your job to communicate so clearly that people will understand what you meant. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I think it's going to bring us to the end of our second segment. And I want to summarize the four points we talked about today, our lessons learned, five, six, seven, and eight. Uh, five, of course, there is a new interest in process 
while EA is still stuck a little bit in technology, <laughs> uh, our sixth, which is we have a responsibility to enable the next generation of professionals in BPA and EA. Number seven, which is whenever you're looking at enablement, that enablement must necessarily include explaining the why. And, uh, and our last one, internal communications cannot come with an expectation of attention. You have to sell people on the messages you want to give them. We'll leave you for a moment to think about those four and come back with our last segment and our number nine and number 10 of our 10 Things I've Learned. Welcome back. And I'm happy that you made it to the first eight lessons learned that we have. So we got two more for you. And <laughs> the, the first one that I want to talk about is, um, and I'm pretty sure everybody has an opinion on that, but I think we need to rethink the role of, quote unquote, the office, <laughs> right? After two years of uh, being in the pandemic and after all the organization put in uh, all the technical effort to make remote work possible, and I think the majority of us in, in a knowledge worker capacity uh, love uh, working remotely because it comes with the very convenient 10 second commute in my case, you know, <laughs> uh, trying to avoid to spill coffee while I'm walking down the stairs. Um, and now we see companies, Tesla, for example, you know, basically saying if you don't show up 40 hours a week in here, you're going to be fired, right? So I think there's a discrepancy between a worker's perspective of things and, and what has proven what mm -hmm. worked um, and what old school organizations might see at the office. So, JM, what is your role or your understanding of the role of the office? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first and foremost, let's talk about the categories right off the bat. Number one is safety. Number two is expectation. So first and foremost, the pandemic is very much not over. Mm -hmm. um, I have more friends who've caught COVID in the past two months than, than the preceding 18. So very much COVID is still a thing. It's still dangerous. And I, I just read an article yesterday about BA2, another variant with a, with a slightly higher mortality rate. We are very much in a situation where asking people to go to the office is asking them to take on personal risk and to become part of a network of transmission to others who have a much higher risk. So there's a first part is that you are asking people to do something that might be dangerous for them and those they love. And that's a hard ask. Number two is the expectations. And Oftentimes, people are, are taking a look back at the last two years and thinking to themselves, you know, this was a tough time, but it opened my eyes to possibilities that I previously didn't have. I have lots of friends who have kids that got a chance to know their young child growing up because of remote working. I have lots of friends who have families who they're able to schedule time around during the day when it was possible and then make that time up in spades in the evening. And they've created these patterns. It's very hard over two years. It's very hard to break that pattern that people have established. And 
making you know remote work a, a thing, keeping that thing makes it you know more efficient for the company because they've got more time coming in from their people. Essentially, you can say we can bank on people giving us the equivalent of their commuting time as work time and more empathetic. So we can we can establish a positive interpersonal relationship with our employees by understanding how they work at home, how they serve their family and their friends, and how this can become part of their life in a more positive and, and interactive fashion. Does that make sense? But it, it does, but it has a little bit of an accounting taste to me. You know, yes, but oh. for those who need it, for those who need the accounting case, yeah. because for those of us who don't need it, it's obvious. For those of us who don't need convincing, remote work is obviously the solution. Well, what I want to say is it's it's not the, the old Karl Marx tradition to say, hey, you you trade your labor for compensation, mm-hmm. right? Which is sometimes it is. But I think the difference between the 19th century and the 21st century is that most of the people I work with typically are pretty motivated doing their job and, and inherently they want to do the right things. But yes. it's not that you have to force them uh, to the conveyor belt and then robot for eight hours, five days a week or how long. Right. right? That, uh, I think, not just the accounting perspective, that is the big difference in my opinion mm-hmm. you know, for the role of the office. The, the office in the day was the mandate. You had to go there. All the tools that you needed to perform your job were in the office. Right. Paper files, machines, whatever, tools, whatever. Right. You couldn't do that from home. So now some countries more than others are digital. Right. You just need a damn laptop and you need a phone. And that makes you completely productive. So I think um, it's not work from home. It's work from anywhere. Yes. Right. Because who cares if you sit on your patio outside or you're at your in-laws or whatever, as long as you get stuff done. Yes. But... Let's talk about the office. Yeah, that's what I want to go to. Because the, yeah, because the, the office is a, a, an important part of things. But I, I'm stealing this phrase from a, um, a really good conference that I, I went to, which is make the office a magnet, not a mandate. You need to have mm-hmm. a reason to be in the office. And unfortunately, you know, for, for people who are still expecting the old style of things, that reason is no longer because you work here. Yeah. That's not sufficient. So let's talk about some ways to make the office relevant for people because once again, if they're taking the risk to come in, there's got to be some benefit to them or even when once COVID, if it eventually evaporates and hopefully goes away forever, the office still will re- remain something that you need to convince people to come into because remote work is going to become more standard. Mm-hmm. So number one, be, be deliberate and intentional about what function the office provides. So it is supposed to be a space for collaboration. If you're thinking about it in entertainment terms, think of it as a venue. It is a venue within which activities occur that require people to be in the same space together for a purpose, like collaboration, brainstorming, you know, Mm -hmm. meetings where they can impart the value of things and convince people to gain consensus, these sorts of things. You want to make the office a destination. So focus on the employee experience of being there. And that means you need to redo the way your offices work you take that budget you you didn't have to spend on on all the things over the last you know two years to to put people up in their offices and uh make the office better but but don't do it in a cheesy way <laughs> one of my one of my previous employers they had what they called an ignition center right in various towns and it was really 
um, cheesy, yeah. right? So the, the one in Atlanta, as you know, the, the Golf Masters is not too far away in Augusta. Mm -hmm. uh, they put a golf-themed topic in there, which had nothing to do with what the firm did, you sure. know, except that they were the sponsor of one of the, the more expensive golf players. But um, you should take that money and spend it on other things. You know, collaboration features, put in the big TVs there and the UFO and all those wonderful things. Invest in the technology. And yes, you might have a football table there, but that's not the whole purpose and that doesn't make you hip. So when no. you do changes to your office, stick with your brand because people might have chosen your uh, firm or your organization because of the brand that you convey to them. So mm -hmm. stick stick on brand. Yeah, and they're also used to interact with their people in the company. You want to create an environment that allows them to make those strong interpersonal bonds. Uh, the way I heard it referred to is thinking of it as a cafe culture, both in mm -hmm. physical and in digital design. How do I socialize with people, socialize ideas with people, and gain this sort of understanding of the of the people in my team and my company so I can create something better with them? Yeah. The other thing you talked about with the technology, and I think this is something that, that is really important that your DE and I folks will love diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is you need to make meetings equitable, whether or not you're physically present. Mm -hmm. And that that's something we should have had all along. But now that we're moving to remote work, and especially when you're looking at people who are immunocompromised, people, you know, persons living with disabilities, those people need to have an equal say at a meeting, even if they can't physically attend that meeting. That requires technology, and that requires a practice change. Agreed. Agreed. But there's also, and, and going on forward, and I hope at some point in time we, we got that whole COVID stuff behind us, you know. Me too. Um, but I think there's still a need for in-person interaction. But what that means for your office is you might have an office space that is not long rows of um, cubicles or, or single desk with big TVs uh, on it. It's multimodal spaces right right so you have the need for the project team that locks itself into a room and, and comes out when the white smoke comes out of the chimney you know <laughs> and they, they figured it out or you need maybe a space where one or two people or a single person just can lock the door and do heads down work or you need a space where people can take a call in a phone booth or wherever so that they don't disturb other people right oh, so yeah. rethink it it's not oh jm here's your cubicle good luck with your next 40 years i think that's <laughs> that time those times have passed yeah so well, think about what are the use cases for your for your office and how you want to spend as an organization your hard-earned dollars on the system uh the the structure the rooms the decor and all those wonderful things that you put in and yeah. by the way don't forget a, cof a good coffee maker. Uh, that's very important too. <laughs> but also, just as you know, good riddance to those times. Like, I'm happy to be done with this. I, I, I know that you and I happen to be in privileged situations where we've done a remote work for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, I mean, how many how many weeks a year did you used to travel back in the days when we traveled? I, I think my, my record was I traveled 34, 30, 35 weeks I was on the road. 
I didn't count, but but for years it was like, yeah, Mondays you leave, Thursdays or Fridays you come back. And yeah. in between you had hotels in fancy places, and I don't want to step on somebody's toes, Blue Ash, Ohio, <laughs> you know, it, it's a destination where you want to go. See yeah. it once, you know. I know. I, I, I've seen a lot of like very small cities that are haven't got a lot going on except for one big company that's in them. I've seen enough of those. And yes, those meetings were good to meet in person, shake a hand, get that interpersonal contact. Mm -hmm. But I have worked and been able to impart more knowledge and wisdom remotely than I would have ever been able to do by getting on a plane, you know, 35 weeks a, a year. And not 35 trips, 35 weeks of traveling, which means multiple cities in a week usually. That, that cut years off my life and disconnected me from my friends and family during that travel time. Good riddance to those days. I am happy to meet with you remotely wherever in the world you are. And by the way, that means waking up at weird times, but that also means being able to flex my schedule. Maybe I've got a meeting at, you know, 10.30 p.m. or 11 p.m. with India. Maybe I've got a meeting at 6 a.m. with Germany. That's okay. We can make that work. Mm -hmm. But flying across the, the country, across the continent, two times in a single week for 35 weeks in a year, that'll kill you faster than any early wake-ups or late bedtimes. Yeah, I think I think you need to find a balance. And what we will see right now over the course of the next year, because mm -hmm. at some point, again, the, the pandemic might be over or like here in the US, people might have decided the pandemic is over. Yeah. Um, you will have to find a new balance on this. And I think now is the time for organizations to rethink the role of the office and rethink about, okay, what do we do? What do we require our employees to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but having said that, JM, uh, we almost made it to, to our point number 10, because this is also connected to a new way of working. And in this case, it's more a new way of communicating. And, and I know that, that you and I are biased, but uh, lesson number 10 is podcasts and videos are the new way to communicate topics. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, I absolutely do. I think that there's a lot of people now who have time and who want to spend that time hearing thought leadership, but it can't be necessarily in the form of a book or in a white paper or in an article. People want to feel like they're interacting with people through this new mm -hmm. digital means. And podcasts and video podcasts and, all, and just explain videos and things like that those are the ways that we have to tell our stories because those mediums allow you to hit on the channels and expectations of your end consumers tell me about what you think yeah. that I, I agree I think the the biggest qualitative difference to the press release and uh, to the uh, boring instruction manual is you build a relationship with the people that you listen to. Mm -hmm. And and I think, at least that's how I feel, when I listen to a podcast over multiple episodes, I get the feeling I know those people. Yeah. Even though I've never met them in person, right? Which obviously might be um, not correct. I hope <laughs> I'm correct, but um, I think you get a, you get a better understanding of what, what people talk about and who they are. And I yeah. think that's a positive change. Absolutely. And also, I think that, that 
you know, when you have that relationship with your audience and when you're able to communicate your message, there's two things. Number one is you're not getting, falling into the trap of just simply being called marketing. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, you're trying to talk about your message, remember that these people who work at companies, we don't represent for that company exclusively all of the time. First and foremost, we are practitioners. Now, the methodologies and practices we espouse may come into alignment with our employer. In fact, that's ideal. That means we found an employer who believes in the same things we do, has enabled technology and practice the same way we would want it to be done. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we're doing corporate marketing for them on this on, on, a, on a podcast. Instead, we're talking about best practices. Now, we've had people reach out to us after the show, after What's Your Baseline, to say, hey, tell me a little bit more about how you would do that with technology. And sure, we're happy to, to talk a little bit more about and put you into a conventional sales cycle. But that's not what we're here for. And that's also not what our audiences expect. So instead, it becomes a con- conversation topic. And then if people need solutions, they have a first stop after that. It isn't the first piece of the puzzle, which is come by, you know, blank companies garbage. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and I have to tell, um, and I know that's true for you as well. I, I learned a boatload of different things over the last nine months oh, yeah. that we do the podcast, which is all exciting. Uh, but it's also a hurdle that you have to overcome. You know, when you, mm. when you do this. So, and I'm not talking about corporate podcasts, you know, behind the firewall, which I would highly recommend to do to <laughs> educate your people. Yep. Um, or uh, whatever, a TV station where you get the videos uh, accompanied with it. But I'm talking also about the podcast like ours that is out in the wild. Yes. Um, I think it is a, a fun ride. I think everybody should try it out. Right? Yeah. And, uh, I think we just in general need more creators, more voices out there. And um, hey, I, I do have a little call for action or call to action for you. Yeah. If you're doing listeners doing a podcast or have a website or, or think about it, please reach out to JM and I. You know, we always are happy to share our knowledge. We're eager in learning new stuff. And we're also obviously all willing to do collaborations with you if, if we think what you're doing makes sense, you know, and brings the discipline forward, which is one of the objectives that we try to follow with, with our podcast to maybe a little bit more professionalize the disciplines of enterprise architecture and business process management. Oh, yeah. And hey, quick shout out then to our friend Mirko with the new <coughs> process lab hey. I mean, he, it's what i've been listening to and it's he's got some really good ideas just like him reach out to us share us share with us what you're doing we'd love to shout you out on the show and once again a big shout out to mirko and what he's been doing so once again our last two number nine and number ten that we're talked about in today's episode is one we need to rethink the role of the office and two that podcasts and videos are the new way to communicate our topics in our industry to our people So we'll leave you for a moment to think about these things. And maybe if you've got your podcast, send us a little link and we will talk (laughs) to you and see you right after the quick break. Welcome back. And I'm happy to report that you not only made it to the end of this episode, you also made it to the end of season two. Yay! But 
before we let you go, I'd like to do a quick summary of the 10 points that we spoke about. Um, so the first one is architecture and process management. It's not about the topics at hand, apps, processes, and so on. It's about the people and how mm -hmm. people interact with each other. Number two, when you're measuring architecture, make it smart. Number three, process mining is the next hot thing, but it's not all, and other older process improvement methods still have their place. <laughs> Number four, process and task mining cannot shotgun a solution. No. Number five, there's a new interest in process while EA might still be stuck in technology. Uh -oh. And number six, we have a responsibility to enable the next generation of process and architecture professionals. Mm -hmm. Number seven, enablement must include the why to oh, put yeah. the context in there. And somewhere in the same way, number eight, internal communications cannot come with expectations of attention. You need to actually sell your message. Oh, yeah. Number nine, rethink the role of the office. And number 10, podcasts and videos are the new way to communicate the topics. So, JM, what do you think about our selection of another <laughs> 10 things that we've learned? I got to tell you, Roland, I feel like it is incomplete and there's so much more to communicate. And you know what? I can't wait to tell our audience about all these amazing topics in season three. And that is a big hello and goodbye to all of you. Season two closes with our 10 things I've learned and season three will open up in just a few short weeks. So hold on to your hats and get ready to go with another amazing season of What's Your Baseline. Now, if you are experiencing What's Your Withdrawal from Baseline, <laughs> then you can go to whatsyourbaseline.com to find lots of great articles and of course, a whole selection of all of our episodes from season one and two, as well as our What's Your Baseline shorts. So also in the meantime, if you are missing us, Roland and JM, feel free to reach out to us at hello at whatsyourbaseline.com or comment, like, share, subscribe to us on all of your different platforms and give us feedback through Anchor, through a voice message or on LinkedIn just by commenting back. We usually respond to those really quickly and we'd love to hear back from you. And of course, you can find all the details about this particular episode, including its transcript at whatsyourbaseline.com slash episode 25, the big 25. Well, for the last time in season two, folks, my name is J.M. Erlinson. And I am Roland Volt. And we will see you next season.